The dog days of summer and Republicans and Democrats talking right past each other. What a joy. Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. I'm Scott Braddock, and he's Jeremy Wallace. You can find me at quorumreport.com, and Jeremy's work, of course, is always at houstonchronicle.com. This has been one of those weeks, Jeremy, where it's just a hodgepodge of things that we could talk about. And tell me if I'm way off base here, but it seems at this point in the campaigns, which will really ramp up later, right? We've got a few weeks for that. Um, but for right now, Neither side wants to talk about what the other side would like to talk about. Is that accurate? Yeah, it is all about like the message we want to stick on. You know, no matter what the other side says, we're going to keep doing our thing and, you know, the hell with everything else. <laughs> well, and yeah, and, and tell me if this is right. I mean, I think back, you know, at least the last couple of decades in covering politics, there was a time, and people will always say this and they'll say, oh, you sound like an old man. But it's not that I'm saying it was better. I'm just saying it was different. It seemed like there was a time when Republicans and Democrats would talk about the same issue. They would just have different opinions about it and what, and what should be done about that thing. And now it's more like, hey, Republicans want to talk about the border. They want to talk about the economy. The Democrats want to talk about uh, perhaps abortion. They want to talk about – well, they want to talk about that for, uh, for sure. They also want to talk about uh, gun violence. And neither side really wants to engage about the thing that the other – side is talking about right. right yep okay so so i know and we have you know listeners on both sides of the aisle republicans and democrats and a lot of people who are just sort of right in the middle as well uh but i will get complaints i think this is how bad it is this week because they're, they're on such different pages i'll get complaints about whatever whatever it is we talk about first we're going to talk about all the things that i just mentioned and more but i got to find some fair way to figure out what to talk about first all right. So because it all feels like sports to me now, because, you know, Texas is a, it's full contact sport, right? Texas politics. I'm going to settle it like this. I'm just going to do a coin flip about what we're going to talk about first. So let me get I've got one here. And Maya, tell the audience you did uh, verify that that this will work on the podcast. People will be able to uh, be able to hear it. Yeah, loud and clear. OK. All right. So you can hear I've got Jeremy. Look, I've got a coin, just a normal quarter. You can see just like we're on the football field now. There's a head. <laughs> well, and there's the tail. All right. Okay. Just normal, right? I'm not cheating. Nobody's getting cheated here. Just like okay. a magic so I'm going to flip the coin. Here. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to flip the coin, and we will see uh, whether we're going to hear from the uh, Democratic side of things first or the Republican side of things first, as far as which issue we talk about uh, first. And in fact, I'll tell you which issue. Uh, we'll talk about abortion of the Democrats if it's the tails, because you know Democrats, that's the donkey, it's the ass, right? Is that fair? And for the Republicans, it's the head, it's the head, the heads. So here we go. Ready? All right. And Jeremy and Maya, both of you can see it is the tails, right? There it is. So that means that no one can complain. That was completely, that you know, completely by chance. We're going to start with the thing that I got the text messages from uh, Democrats about all night on Tuesday night, which was the big result on abortion. In Kansas, it was kind of stunning, wasn't it, Jeremy? Yes, to a degree. <laughs> mm -hmm. that, that's a good. That's a good way to say it. This was the report I saw uh, on NBC. This is uh, Chuck Todd. Voters in what you might call Ruby Slipper Red, Kansas, overwhelmingly sided with abortion rights advocates, striking down a proposed constitutional amendment that would have paved the way for the state legislature to increase abortion restrictions in the state, perhaps banning abortion completely. 
The vote loudly confirmed hopes among Democrats that abortion could be a powerful motivating issue in the midterms. We've been seeing clues this summer that these midterms might not be going what you might say is the normal way for the president for a president's first midterm. There have been signs that political winds could be shifting for his party ever so slightly. We saw the increase in voter enthusiasm, a bounce in midterm polling, which was notably decoupled from Biden's sagging job approval ratings, stronger than expected fundraising and quite a few Senate races. And then Kansas happened. And in Kansas, it was fascinating to go through the numbers on Tuesday night. And here's what it is, Jeremy. They had a ballot initiative that had to do with whether or not the legislature could go forward with more abortion restrictions. That's the simple way to, to think about it, right? And I think it's um, one of those ballot initiatives that might be confusing to people where um, – and, and you, you have heard this time in memoriam. If people don't understand an initiative – they will vote no, especially older voters. Like if they don't understand it, they'll say, well, I don't, I don't want to change anything. Uh, so I'll just hit the no on that instead of going forward with something. However, on this, the messaging was pretty simple and it wasn't necessarily partisan uh, as far as the way that it was uh, portrayed uh, by those uh, abortion rights supporters who didn't want uh, to see this thing happen. But the numbers, I mean, uh, here's, let me give you this number because the Republican and Democratic primaries were happening the same night in Kansas, and they were happening in other places as well. For the ballot initiative, which is voted on separate from the GOP and Democratic primaries, the turnout was 20% higher on the abortion issue than it was for choosing the nominees for the parties to go on to be, uh, you know, the, the combatants in November. And the Secretary of State in Kansas said that they were approaching presidential level turnout there for this. What does that say to you? Well, it, it, look, there's a ton of energy out there. You know, it's like we, we've seen this since the first leaks of that Supreme Court, you know, decision on Dobbs is like, you know, from that first moment on, like to, to underestimate the frustration and anger uh, from, you know, younger voters, particularly. And I've been seeing it all over the state. They're They're kind of geared up. They want to get into, you know, voting. And I think that's what's happened up in Kansas, too. And and I can't believe I'm saying, look, I'm a Mizzou grad, so you, normally anything about Kansas doesn't go well when I'm talking about. But I, I want to say it's like mm -hmm. it's not the ruby red place that people are kind of making it sound like, you know, it's like it's a different kind of republicanism out there. Uh, it's like, you know, their governor right now is a Democrat. You know, it's like, you know, they they have elected a different kind of Republican even over the years and haven't, you know, it's just a different kind of conservative. It's not Oklahoma, you know, it's mm -hmm. like they're right next yep. to each other, but they That's are fair. very different in their Republican values. So I don't know, just one of those things where it's like, as you hear a lot of the national people go, Oh, Ruby red, you know, Kansas they're like, well, Ruby red, right. except for their sitting governor is a, is a Democrat. It's like, you got to kind of put that in there probably to kind of make right. sure people understand. It's like, you know, that Kansas city suburban area, is still a very dominant part of Kansas because uh, a lot of that, you know, most of that's in Missouri, of course, but it leaks over into Kansas and really kind of changes the politics there. So, anyhow, side light. Well, <laughs> and well, but, but sure, uh, the Democratic governor though would be the kind of Democrat who might be a Republican in some other places, 
right? I mean, th- these are pretty conservative Democrats. It's like when you talk about uh, Democrats uh, in Texas down in the Valley, right? There would be some of the some of the Democrats who would brag that they own more guns than some of the Republican colleagues that they have in the legislature, right? So, um, you know, I don't know. You never want to read too much into one of these elections. Uh, but I did have so many folks who are upset about the current laws in Texas who were saying maybe this gave them some hope that maybe uh, that, that Republicans are just going too far with all of this and that it's not so much that people don't want you know, any restrictions at all on abortion. That's not true. I mean, if you look at uh, what people support in, in various polling data that you've seen uh, and in election results around the country uh, and here in Texas, it seems like folks are in favor of some kind of restrictions, but na- maybe not, as we have talked about here before, maybe not what we now have in place in Texas, which is no exceptions, no exceptions for just about anything, no exception for rape and incest and all of that. When you look at the polls on that, you get to where you have about 75, 80% of people are against, in Texas, are against what the Texas legislature has passed on that issue. Yeah, exactly. Somewhere between no exceptions and allowing all late-term abortions, like the debate is in the middle. And whichever party goes too far or wins too far on their end, you can see there's a backlash that happens. And I think that's kind of like the moral I'm kind of getting out of Kansas, which is like, you know, they're, you know, there's you can go too far and they're seeing what other states are doing and they don't want to go as far as Texas has. And I'm not sure where mm-hmm. the Texas electorate, like how it speaks up. You know, the polling clearly shows it's not in support of what we have on the books. You know, it's like I don't think that's inarguable at this point, uh, but not debatable at, at mm-hmm. this point. You know, it's like, you know, I don't know how it really impacts Texas. You know, it's like like you mentioned, it's like it's hard to. It's really easy to overread how these midterm elections in various parts of the country, you know, play out in Texas, which typically I say it doesn't, (laughs) you know, it's like I don't want to overread, you know, one result in one place that are very specific. Again, Mm -hmm. Kansas politics are so much more different. It's not like Texas Republicanism. It's a different kind of a place. Uh, You know, so Texas is much different conversation, but the energy on the left is coming from what happened with the Supreme Court. There's no doubt about it. I've seen it as I traveled with Beto O'Rourke's campaign uh, through some of those West mm-hmm. Texas towns. It's like the amount of support and you know frustration of you know women, particularly who are concerned about what they've seen from the Supreme Court, is obvious when you go to these rallies. They're much louder and much more a part of these rallies than they were, you know, four years ago in 2018 when he was running for the Senate, where people liked him. But now I see people in there who seemingly are fighting for something or to preserve a right. So it's just a, a, a definitely different environment different. and it's added a different edge mm-hmm. to what should be a Republican wave year, typically. Mm-hmm. Historically, you know, the, the the president's party is doomed in a midterm election. But in this case, generally, you know, it's like this abortion ruling may just have taken a little of that edge off. And you've seen a lot of the national prognosticators now start going, well, maybe Democrats will hold on to the Senate. There's a real shot that they're going mm-hmm. to do that, uh, which would be kind of a big upset, you know, compared to where we were at the start of this year. Right. And what I tell people about this when they ask, you know, the question you always get, well, does this mean uh, that everything is different now because of this one thing? And you have to keep coming back to the thought that the elections in November 
will be uh, unfolding in a dynamic situation, right? There are lots of issues that are at play. When people make decisions about all sorts of things, including who they're going to vote for, they consider lots of different issues, right? It, it will be the abortion issue. It will be what's happened uh, with gun violence in this country and the fact that not much has been done legislatively or in any other way about the gun violence that we have seen uh, here in Texas and other places. The electricity grid is another one. And I thought this was sort of a uh, flip of the script, at least as some people saw it, although uh, if people were completely surprised by this, they were not paying attention to Texas politics. So that would not be our audience. They're the most in the know, as you know. Uh, but this was the headline at quorumreport.com with general election on the horizon. Ag Commissioner Miller, it would be Sid Miller, who is no liberal. He blasts Abbott and the Republican majority in the legislature on the electricity grid, among other things that Commissioner Miller, who has described himself, uh, Jeremy, you remember, as Trump's man in Texas. And of course, Lieutenant Governor Patrick would, you know, maybe take issue with that. Uh, but I, it's interesting. Whenever, um, whenever Trump would visit when he was president, remember how many times we had to hear Dan Patrick and or Sid Miller talking about when they would get to ride in the car with Trump yes. wherever wherever he had landed, <laughs> and and that was the whole thing. That's what they would talk about. Well, in fact, Dan you know, Patrick in speeches and radio interviews and everything. In fact, Dan Patrick just brought that up during his CPAC speech. Uh, you know, earlier this week where he just had to talk about, oh, by the way, everybody, I'm really good friends with Trump. And as we've hung out, right. did, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> did he mention, did he mention that he can call him on his cell phone at any time? Yeah, he, That's uh, usually what he works yeah, into, like he, into those speeches. He just loves to remind people that he's got an in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. In an email to supporters, Commissioner Miller wrote, among other things, quote, this summer has put the lie to the idea that we have made all the reforms Texas needs when it comes to electricity. He said, quote, as temperatures have spiked, regulators have repeatedly told us to turn off the lights, close the blinds and keep our homes uncomfortably hot. Miller said uh, in this email as well that, quote, it's outrageous that in one of the most successful states in the most successful country in the world, we can't keep the lights on. Jeremy, who on the campaign trail has been saying a version of that over and over and over again? And, and that, that this person also uh, added the word, the jokers can't keep the lights on. Yeah, that, It sounds like it's torn straight from the pages of the Beto O'Rourke campaign platform, right? You know, this is like what mm -hmm. they're running on. You know, it's like, you know, he's the one who is traveling the state saying the grid's not fixed, the grid's not fixed, you know, and here we are. Uh, you know, it, it's Sid Miller now. Well, Sid Miller, and um, I, I mentioned earlier that people maybe shouldn't be surprised by this. Miller has been saying uh, for the last year that the legislature needed to do more when it came to reforming the electricity grid. He's been an outlier among Republican leadership who basically, and you know, Abbott has said over and over again, everything that needed to be done was done when it came to the grid after the storm uh, last year uh, during the wintertime. Uh, Miller put together uh, what he called his Texas power plan uh, and said that, look, legislators need to do a whole lot more on all of this. I do think that it's a really good issue for Democrats to talk about now and lay the groundwork for the time when something might go wrong with the grid. But here's the thing, Jeremy, at some point they may have to pivot off of that because the issue will absolutely fizzle if we get all the way to the fall and people in Texas don't perceive that anything wrong happened with the grid, right? I mean, you might have outages here and there, but if you don't have big rolling blackouts, rolling brownouts, any of that, um, Abbott will easily be able to say, hey, look, Everything was fine, and these people were making something out of nothing. Yeah, exactly. It's like, you know, if the grid 
you know, performs well over you know the hot August month here. Uh, that's all good news for Greg Abbott and all the Republicans kind of who are trying to defend this grid right now. As like so, mm-hmm. you know, definitely. But you know, it kind of goes back to you know what we've been saying on the show forever. You know, it's like and if you know folks have a pen and paper, just remember, write this down. You know, a year in politics is a lifetime, right? You know, we were saying that in January. We don't know what issues are coming. Mm-hmm. And even like, you know, right. six months from now, it's like we don't know what's going to be motivating people. It's like things happen so quickly. You know, clearly, you know, we did not see the Supreme Court decision coming, you know, a year ago. We did not know that, you know, the grid was going to have this resurgence of being an issue. We did not see, you know, mm-hmm. Uvalde happening just the way it did. All these things have completely changed the political dynamic. And here's here's the thing. Something's going to happen, you know. <laughs> there, it, things always happen, <laughs> and so sometime yeah, right. in well, September things, and October, we'll all be talking about something that we can't even imagine right now. Right. Don't expect us to know what that is. For example, um, at the beginning of the year, I did not have Beto O'Rourke retweeting statements from Sid Miller on my political bingo card. <laughs> True. Now let's go. Let's let's talk about since they lost the coin toss, uh, they go second. Uh, for their issue, the Republicans. They would like to talk mainly about what issue, Jeremy? What is the one thing that Greg Abbott would would probably prefer to talk about? Nothing else other than this issue all the way to the election in November. Uh, these softball questions are easy. Border. <laughs> Just talk yeah, to right. me about get, the border okay, yeah. every stinking day is probably Nothing what else. you know Abbott's campaign is telling him. You know, it's like every day you say mm-hmm. something about the border. I don't care if it's on Fox or a local TV station. You, know, you say it. Say the word border and Biden's border problem every day if you can. Yep. It, right. And if they ask about uh, abortion, keep it uh, short and uh, keep it snappy. Um, the uh, the uh, immigration issue. Uh, has uh, prompted Abbott to expand his migrant busing program, which I, of course, uh, first dismissed as just a stunt. It's turning into sort of a man-made, Abbott-made crisis in D.C. and New York City. And you saw where the governor of Arizona also joined in on this, sending migrants uh, on buses uh, up to the East Coast. And the mayor in Washington, uh, Muriel Bowser, uh, was on CBS News. She said that not only is this making the problem worse, she thinks people are being tricked into getting on those buses in the first place. Well, this is a very significant issue. Um, We have for sure called on the federal government uh, to work across state lines to prevent um, people from really being tricked uh, into getting on buses. Uh, we, we think they're largely asylum seekers uh, who are going to final destinations that are not Washington, D.C. Uh, I worked uh, with the White House to make sure that FEMA provided a grant to a local organization um, that is providing services to folks. Um, but I fear that they're being uh, tricked into nationwide um, bus trips when their final destinations are places all over the United States of America. The idea that you would take thousands of migrants and bus them to one or two cities, uh, that that proposal, that idea does lead to more problems uh, because you're putting everybody in one place with no services, really. It's sort of like uh, when uh, people were bused, I was there for it in 2005, when they were bused from New Orleans to Houston, uh, they were evacuees uh, during uh, a hurricane, Hurricane Katrina. And of course, there were wraparound services there for people, and they were trying to take care of folks who had to get out of the storm's way. But this does seem sort of similar, Jeremy, that you put you put everybody into one place. What normally happens, and you can think this is good or bad, you can disagree with it or not, but this is not what normally happens, right? What normally happens is 
people come through the border, they either get apprehended uh, or they surrender because they're seeking asylum, whatever. Uh, and we we do uh, have you know reason to think that a lot of the people who are being sent to Washington and New York are those people who are trying to migrate legally by uh, seeking asylum. So that'd be at least some of the population we're talking about. Um, but normally these folks would disperse throughout the interior. They, they wouldn't all end up in one place. They, they would be all over the you know, all over the place. They'd be in Texas. They'd be in other states as well, other cities. They would uh, integrate into communities. Well, what do they, what do people think that these folks do once they get here? They get jobs. They you know become taxpayers and all the rest. And and in a lot of cases, even when they're not documented. Now Abbott told Fox News Channel he has invited Mayor Bowser and the mayor of New York, who's the new guy up there, uh, uh, Eric Adams, uh, to come down to the valley and elsewhere on the border to check this all out for themselves. They wanted to complain about it, about what they're having to grapple with, uh, but I wanted them to come to the border and, and see for themselves the magnitude of the problem that we're having at the border. Uh, we've sent more than 6,000 people by bus to Washington, D.C. We have that many people coming across the Del Rio sector every single day. Every day. And they need to see firsthand what we're having to deal with. I think if we could educate more leaders across this country about the chaos caused by the Biden administration, that would compel the Biden administration to finally step up and do its job under the Constitution and enforce the immigration laws that have been passed by Congress. Of course, those would be the laws passed by Congress in the 1980s, which do not reflect the realities of uh, 2022 at all. Only in politics, Jeremy, could you take a problem, and we've seen this before, only in politics could you take a problem, do something specific to make it worse, and then take advantage of how much worse you made it, which is exactly what Abbott's doing right now. Yeah, it's interesting, too. Like, And so uh, he, during his CPAC speech, he was even more aggressive. Uh, this was on Thursday. He, you know, he, he says he understands like they're having trouble in D.C. and New York now with all these migrants coming. But then he says, I got one thing to tell you and tell them. There are more buses on the way. It's like, and so it's just like this weird kind of issue where it's just like, you just kind of have to wonder, it's like, what what happened if like, you know, one of those cities said, you know what, we're going to like convince our homeless to kind of bus to Texas, where it'll be warmer and they yeah. won't freeze to death. So, and they have better services for you. So, you know, it, 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 what prevents that from happening? I think, you know, Abbott's kind of started yeah. something to me that seems really kind of weird to just like to you know, push the problem somewhere else. It's juvenile and unhealthy. And I will say this, there is nothing, if he can do this, there's nothing to keep those mayors from just putting the people on buses and sending them right back. Yeah. Right. What would, what would stop them? What would stop them from doing that? The only thing that would stop them from doing it is being decent. Now you mentioned CPAC. There are a lot of really fired up speakers there. I saw some of the um, exhibitors in the uh, exhibitors in the, uh, in the exhibition hall there. We were doing some interesting things. Did you see the video of the guy who's in the jail cell and is supposed to represent uh, one of the January 6th prisoners? Yes. It's one of the crazier things I've seen. There's a guy, I think he's wearing a MAGA hat. I just looked at the video this morning. Wearing a MAGA hat in a prison cell. This is one of the booths in the, in the exhibit hall there. And they will, if you want to check out the experience of what it's like to be one of the January 6th prisoners, somebody who was arrested on J6, as they say it in Washington, um, they'll give you a set of heads, a headset and you can listen to people talk about what it was like to be detained after January 6th. And you can look at a guy in a jail cell with a MAGA hat crying because he's in jail. That's the kind of conference this is. 
Here's another example of what kind of conference it is uh, there in Dallas. Victor Orban, who had just had members of his own staff resign for using, as they put it, Nazi language. Orban came across from Eastern Europe to speak at the Hilton Anatole in Dallas, Texas. The globalists can all go to hell. I have come to Texas. Uh, <laughs> and he got a standing ovation for that, Jeremy, that line, which I think is kind of a crime against Texas history. Um, and I was told that because Orban is there, and this was just, this is anecdotal, but I was talking to some Republicans who did not attend this edition of CPAC Texas. They said because Orban is there, they're not going. That that for some people who've considered themselves very, very conservative, they thought that was a little bit too much. Um, I, I also saw where the tickets for CPAC in Dallas um, were supposed to be going for $300 a piece. And by Thursday, uh, and I think actually on, on Wednesday they were doing this, they were offering a deep, deep discount. Um, Wednesday and Thursday, I was told that if you put in a, a promotion code of Dallas GOP, the $300 ticket was discounted to $88. So obviously, they are having some problem getting people to attend these, these things. And, and look, I don't know if it's because, you know, the and Trump is supposed to speak at this thing over the weekend. Maybe, you know, the attendance will pick up. Obviously, that would be the big, you know, the big headliner for all this. Um, but uh, I don't know if some of the air is coming out of the balloon with the Trump thing. Or you could also attribute it to the fact that there are so many of these similar conferences now. as well. Didn't, didn't CPAC have a big thing in Florida as well, maybe somewhere else. And, the, and then you also have the Turning Point USA thing where uh, where Ted Cruz and these other conservative lawmakers come out to what sounds like, kind of sound like uh, like Calvin Harris dance music, like what you might hear in a, like what you might hear in a club in Vegas. Uh, and they have the smoke machines and everything as, as Ted Cruz comes out, it's really over the top and ridiculous. Um, but what, what do you make of it, Jeremy, the fact that uh, you do have, I think, smaller crowds, but very pumped up and energetic crowds. Yeah, there's so many of these going on right now, right? And if you've been listening to the show, you've heard us you know, talk about the NRA convention. It was like this, the Texas Republican Party convention. You know, CPAC had something earlier, you know, in Florida. They had CPAC last year in Dallas. You have CPAC this year in Dallas. So it's kind of an oversaturation of the, the market at this point, right? It's like you could pay, you know, $100, $200, $300, you know, every week to go to one of these conferences right now. Now, and they may have finally hit the tipping point of like, okay, there's too many of these events. And this kind of, you know, it has a lot of Texas people in it, uh, but it's missing some of the, you know, people, I think some of the people that conservatives would like to hear speak, you know, DeSantis is not at this one, you know, you don't have, you know, Tim Scott from South Carolina. Uh, you don't have a lot of the people that people see as, you know, big time rivals for the presidency coming up. You have a, uh, and I, I hate having to classify people. You have a lot of B listers on this list. They had the, 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 the former CEO of Papa John's doing a whole segment, oh, wow. you know, on there. And I'm thinking who, and it was a, you know, it was a really boring speech. Uh, and I'm not sure. Like, Was it not any good? No, it was it was it was viciously bad. You know, it was like, <laughs> come on. It's like it was billed as something about going yeah. back to the 1970s. And the only mention of the 1970s was like Jimmy Carter was president. And then in the 80s, Reagan came along and I started my business in pizza. And you're like, what? OK, what are we talking about now? You know, it's like it was it had nothing to do with anything. But so I think all of that kind of combines uh, and, and, and look, and, in terms of oversaturating the market, it's like even Donald Trump, it's like how many times has Donald Trump been to Texas this year? 
Uh, I have been on the road covering Donald Trump so many times this year. It is unusual to be covering the, the former president of the United States coming to Texas five times in six months. But that's what we're sitting at right now. It's like he is here right. every month. <laughs> so if you don't pay to go to CPAC, don't worry. Next month, he'll be here doing something else. You know, I'm almost guaranteeing it. <laughs> I know some people are going to take issue with you saying that the Papa John's guy was boring, but I'll give you an example of what he was saying. Um, who loves pizza? Everybody loves pizza. That was the that was the big applause line in the in the speech. Now, everything at these events, whether it be um, Turning Point USA, CPAC or whatever, everything is about owning the libs. Right. It, it seems like there's a whole ideology built around owning the libs, basically being offensive to Democrats and liberals. Right. It's, it's, it's that if if people are, quote unquote, woke on the left, then the folks who would be just the flip side of the coin would be those who are as offensive as they can be. Right. Because the whole idea of, of being woke is sort of being politically correct on steroids. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, there, there's certain words you shouldn't say. And there are different debates about that. But I was I was talking this through with a friend the other day. And I thought about the the, uh, the fact that the people who are so anti-woke are also people who just don't do anything. They just talk a lot, right? They talk a lot. They, these are not, you know, people who are the leaders of the past like FDR or Ronald Reagan, the people who did big things. It's Tucker Carlson who goes on Fox News and just, sort of, you know, slings insults at people, L literally just on his show talks about the physical appearance of people and makes fun of them, right? He's just, it, this is the guy who said that Dan Crenshaw was what? Uh, I patch McCain and got that whole thing going, right? So here's somebody who has done nothing, but is just talking so he can be as offensive as possible to the people who take offense at everything, right? Those would be the woke people, right? So, so if everything is about owning the libs, I'll give you an example. Here's uh, our esteemed Congressman, Roger Williams. He tells a little story about when he was at the airport the other day, and it sort of makes this point. I was in the airport the other day. And uh, when I got off the airplane, people knew that I was on the airplane, about 15 of them, and they began to yell and scream at me with signs and try to follow me up the elevator. And in the past, uh, Byron, I've kind of let it go, right? Because mm -hmm. we're, we're peaceful people. We, we got things to get done. But I had all I can take. And I dropped my briefcase. I remember thinking to myself, I hope somebody is taping this. <laughs> because I tore, this woman was yelling at me about this and that and her body and this and that. And I, and I finally, I finally, Fired back at her. I didn't say anything bad, but I fired back at her with the truth, right? The truth's on our side. We're on the right side. And all of a sudden, she broke down and just started crying. And she said, I've never been talked to by a man like that in my life. Well, I was talking about America and the great things that we have. And her husband took her away. And I tell you that story only because in the past, we may not have been fighters. We have been thinkers. But the other side cannot take a punch. So if in the past they were uh, not uh, fighters, but they were thinkers in the past, you would just have to think that that's now reversed, that they're not thinkers and instead they're just fighters, right? They need to be the people who punch. I, uh, maybe I'm overstating that. But this is the, if you listen to his story, Jeremy, it sounded like what happened at the airport was – and I'm just going off what he said. He was very nonspecific about some of that confrontation, but it sounded like what he was saying was a woman was upset about some of these abortion restrictions. She was talking about her body, so I have to assume that that's what that was about. And his answer to her was to say America is great, which would be a perfect example of political discourse in the year of our Lord 2022. Now, it was three years ago this week um, that just a horrific thing played out. Uh, out in El Paso. Busting guns. 
in Walmart right now. AK, somebody's got shot. Guy walking around with uh, an assault rifle, Walmart in El Paso. When the smoke cleared, 23 people were shot dead. More than 20 others were wounded uh, after this man drove, what, 11 hours from the DFW suburbs uh, out to El Paso with the stated purpose of hunting brown people, right? Killing them in cold blood for not being white. Uh, Army specialist Alden Hall was there in the store and he told CBS News what it was like as that was playing out. He says he was standing in the produce aisle near one of the exits, heard the gunfire, ran toward the door and saw the gunman lift his weapon and smirk. When you turned and took off, how quickly after that did you hear gunfire? Uh, approximately four seconds after and hit the guy next to me. How close was the man next to you? Within the arm's length. Did he survive? The first shot, yes, but not the second shot. Just terrific. This is from a documentary that was released one year after the shooting. Imagine how unremarkable it must have felt on the morning of August 3rd. Such an ordinary start to a Saturday in El Paso. Shoppers were packed inside this Walmart, buying groceries and back-to-school supplies. That's how it felt on a recent Saturday morning. All that normalcy now tempts us to forget what happened here, when evil darkened this door. In that gunfire, Maribel Latine was shot twice, and she was laying on the ground pretending to be dead. He shot at us, like, individually, trying to get us individually. And then he came walking towards us to make sure we all got shot again to get killed. Now, as parents were bleeding on the pavement there, some of the little girls ran up to her, uh, and they were trying to figure out where their parents were, Jeremy. And she knew where they were, but she couldn't bring herself to tell them where they were because she didn't want the kids to see what had happened. The girls were crying. They were asking about their dads. They were asking about their moms. I knew where their dads were, but I couldn't tell them. Beto O'Rourke at the time running for president, remember he left the campaign trail to head home and be there in El Paso. I'm, I'm just following the lead that I've, that I've heard from the El Paso Police Department where they say there are strong indications that um, this shooter uh, wrote that manifesto and that this was inspired by his hatred of people here in this community. Now that would have been bad enough, Jeremy, but remember it was after that, that then there was also a mass shooting in Midland, Odessa. And that was, and you pointed this out before here, that was what led O'Rourke to make the comment that he made that has now been hurled around the world about, hell yes, we will take your AK-47, uh, your AR-15, your AK-47 and all that. Uh, hell yes, we'll take your assault rifles, which was something that the Abbott campaign was really stressing earlier this year. You remember their digital ads where they were, uh, you know, playing that clip over and over again, and they were putting Abbott's campaign was pointing out that Beto has been sort of all over the map on this. At, at one point, he had said he didn't want to do anything to take anybody's guns, and then of course you do have that famous quote that I'm talking about that came after those shootings. Uh, Representative Joaquin Castro, a Democrat of San Antonio, said this on the U.S. House floor as they were voting on a memorial uh, for the El Paso victims. He pointed out. And he is not inaccurate to say that this was encouraged by some people in government with their rhetoric. Listen. In 2019, the El Paso community was shaken to its core when a crazed gunman drove more than 11 hours to stop what he called, quote unquote, the Hispanic invasion of Texas. All of us know 
that this hatred and bigotry was encouraged from the highest levels of our government and played upon stereotypes developed in American media from hard news to Hollywood for generations. This appalling event led to 23 innocent lives being cut short and dozens injured in the deadliest targeted attack on Latinos in modern American history. The uh, website El Paso Matters had a story um, earlier this year about uh, Greg Abbott's latest executive orders and the invasion rhetoric, which, Jeremy, you might remember, is exactly the same as the rhetoric that was in a fundraising letter that Abbott had sent right around that time and then sort of apologized for after the shooting played out when you had um, a shooter who left a manifesto that contained the exact same kind of language about an immigrant invasion. This guy from Allen, Texas, from north of Dallas, gets in the truck, makes the trip 11 hours across the state to go shoot people for being brown. And I'm here to tell you, I cover this stuff for a living every day, week, month, year since then. And their rhetoric is not any different. Yeah, if anything, you're hearing it even more so. The, the the talk of invasion is a key component. What you just heard in Arizona, where they were having their primary elections for governor, uh, where they want to declare an invasion coming across the border so they can get you know more aggressive about the people coming across, who again, the majority of whom are in fact brown, right? You know, in the same language is being used in Texas. You heard Don Huffines, you know, calling it an invasion constantly. You know, it's like this idea. It's like you know, just is planted in this electoral cycle at this point. I haven't heard Abbott, mm-hmm. you know, use that same terminology, uh, you know, recently. But you know, boy, it's like there's going to be a lot of people using that terminology in Texas and other places along the border, and you just like wonder. It's like you know, why are we doing that? You know, when you're talking about areas of this state that are 90 to 100 percent Hispanic, you know, it's like and to use mm-hmm. that language like that somehow they're an invasion, like in their own state. I, I, I just don't get it. And at a time when Republicans are making this big play for Hispanic voters, I mean, we have heard all year about this push down in the valley and the big four counties in the valley uh, to uh, try to convince more folks that they should vote for Republicans. And they have had some success with that, right? I mean, they had one party switcher down there in the Texas House who is vying for, uh, you know, basically re-election, but to a little, uh, you know, uh, shifted up district. They they changed the districts around uh, during redistricting last year. Uh, But one uh, Democrat who became a Republican and then one uh, Republican who won a special seat or a special uh, election for a seat in Congress, uh, who ever since then has been running around talking about this idea that Hispanics are moving toward the Republicans. In some places they are, and this is this is way more complicated than, than people want to make it out to be, right? If you turn on Fox News Channel, you would think that everyone who is Mexican-American in Texas is, is leaving the Democratic Party in droves, and they're all becoming Republicans now. And that is not happening in any way, shape, or maybe like, maybe in one form, which is down in the valley. You do have some Hispanics who are moving in that direction for a variety of reasons. Um, our publisher, Harvey Kronberg at QuorumReport.com last week had a column out where he talked about, and you know what, you know what this term means, Jeremy, street money in politics? Yeah. You know, um, Harvey described the uh, money that has been spent on Operation Lone Star, the supposed uh, border security initiative by the governor. He des- uh, Harvey described it as one of the biggest efforts at street money in the history 
of Texas, of $4 billion, where they're down there hiring all these people to work at various law enforcement agencies. Um, those businesses down there are doing really well because you have uh, you know cops just standing around with not a whole lot to do. I was on um, a, a trip to the Valley a few weeks ago, and I can tell you that everywhere you go, let me say it this way, make sure your registration sticker is current if you drive to the Valley, because there are <laughs> there are police everywhere. Like every half mile, there's border patrol, there's the sheriff's department, there's the police, there's the ISD police, there's the DPS, there's everybody who's just sitting around waiting for you to mess up because we have surged all these resources down to the valley, uh, supposedly for border patrol, but none of these agencies, except for the border, the, you know, except for the border patrol, um, you know, have, have real jurisdiction over the border issues, right? So we've so we've seen DPS arresting people for criminal trespass. And some of the accusations around that uh, have been that DPS would find some migrants, walk those migrants over to somebody's ranch, let's say, and then, and this was some specific accusations in court, and then they would arrest them for trespass after they had kind of forced them onto the private land, which is really unbelievable, human rights abuses and all this. Um, but the way that immigration uh, is talked about is, uh, it's talked about in this very simplistic form. And I have been listening to people say this for 20 years. They're like, what is it about illegal that you don't understand? Well, anyone who says that to me, I guarantee you, because I've been at this a while, does not know that entry without inspection is a misdemeanor. Right. So, so that's number one. Number two, as I mentioned earlier, the laws on the books about this have not been updated since Ronald Reagan was president. A few things in migration patterns and economic conditions and, and the way that the workforce in Texas works, a lot of those things have changed in the meantime. But nothing about the laws has been changed. I mean, you can you can go issue by issue where uh, those who would describe themselves as conservative would say that, look, you shouldn't change the law. You just need to enforce it. Right. But that would be on guns where we have weapons now that are modernized and the laws are not. We have immigration where we have modern immigration problems. Look, when, when, when conservatives say there are problems, well, of course there are. But you don't look to a policy prescription from back when I was six years old to address the issues that are happening now in 2022, Jeremy. And there is no agreement in Washington to update any of that. Yeah. And one of the things that's always like, you know, disturbed me about the immigration discussion, like the one thing that like, and, and I got this from Jeb Bush, you know, obviously no democratic liberal, you know, right. He, he you know, he would tell us all the time. It's like 40% of all the illegal immigration that's in the United States is from people who came over as tourists and then just disappeared into the, into the country. And so you hear like all this immigration enforcement, we're so focused on, you know, the, the people who are trying to come across to work, you know, versus like, what about all these airports where, you know, visa overstays are happening? And it's like, what are we doing in Orlando for all the people who said they were going to Disney and then just disappeared into the United States somewhere? It's like, you know, why aren't we talking about that more? But the focus is always, you know, finding Ted Cruz walking along the Rio Grande River in some brush. And <laughs> right. it's like, it makes for much mm -hmm. better TV than showing people, you know, leaving Disney and just disappearing, right? <laughs> right. Well, and that's how complex, again, it, what is it about illegal you don't understand? But based on what you're talking about, which is a real issue with the visas, th this is how complicated it is. You can come into the country legally and then be here illegally. Yeah. Right. Right. That's how complicated it is. So people, when they say that, 
I guarantee you, here's another thing to write down since we're telling people to write stuff down. If, if somebody says that, they don't know what they're talking about. Write that down. Um, Jeremy, there is some real anger over a – and I can't – this is how bad politics is this week. Dear listener, I hate to break it to you. Um, there's real anger and resentment over a good piece of legislation that actually passed and is passing and is going to be the law. How is that possible? Well, <laughs> there, there was this big argument between Republicans, including Ted Cruz, who you mentioned, um, and Democrats, and uh, somebody with some star power, John Stewart, uh, formerly of The Daily Show, and he's done a whole bunch of other stuff. Everybody knows who John Stewart is. Maya, you know who John Stewart is, right? Um, are you old enough to have been watching The Daily Show when he was hosting it? Unfortunately not. I didn't see. I knew that. I so it's a little. <laughs> he was great. Nothing against Trevor Noah at all, but I mean, John Stewart was sort of the OG. Although here's some here's some history, some trivia. Jeremy, who was the original host of The Daily Show? Oh, you know, uh, the uh, the guy from ESPN. I just can't remember his name. Uh, Carson? No, no. Kilborn. No. Um, Craig Kilborn. Craig Kilborn. Yeah, right. And it, it actually, he was good, but he didn't make it his baby the way Jon Stewart yeah. did, right? And actually, Kilborn went on to, I think he did the like the late, late yeah. show on on CBS, which was actually a better fit for him. Anyway, my, my entertainment uh, review aside. So why are Cruz and Stewart even getting into it, Jeremy? What was the, um, before I, before I let the listeners hear uh, John Stewart lose his mind at Cruz, because you're, you're about to hear that and get ready for some rough language ahead. Um, but I want you to first explain why he was so angry, Jeremy. What was this all about? Okay. Yeah. Uh, okay, I, I love politics. Everybody knows that. Right. But I hate politics around veterans you know, like that who have served our country and are coming back wounded. And so you got to have that as the base point to even have this discussion. But so this all revolves around some legislation about burn pits. You know, what are burn pits? Burn pits are what the military used in Afghanistan and Iraq, particularly to get rid of everything you know so they would put medical stuff in there they'd put like you know body parts they would put like old ammunition they put everything into these burn pits and just set them aside you set them up on fire and so anybody who was stationed near those areas had the potential of you know breathing in whatever crazy fumes were kind of going on in this stuff and a lot of these guys came yeah. back and started going hey wait i'm having issues breathing i'm having asthma issues uh and and just like you know look the the va is a great place for a lot of you know things right but it's always been slow yeah. you know anybody from the vietnam right. era knows that you know they were so slow to understand ptsd and agent orange mm -hmm. it took them decades to get help to people and with these burn pits it's the same thing happening where it's been taking them forever and this is really important for texas you know we have like and more than double the amount of people on the burn pit registries looking for help than any other state in the country you know, we are, you know, we have a lot of veterans. We have 1.4 million veterans in this state. And so this has a lot, you know, you know, on Texas. So you have to have that understanding before you even hear John Stewart and Ted Cruz go at this thing. Right. So let me provide another piece of context, which is the larger legislative game that was going on in Washington. You know that the Democratic, uh, I say majority, they're, they're evenly split in the Senate, but they can they can move forward on bills if it's about spending. Is basically what, what they've gotten to in the U.S. Senate now. Uh, they, they don't need any any Republicans to do that. And the Democratic, I'll just say majority, because technically, if the vice president goes down there and votes, they have a majority. So technically they do, although I'm, I'm, I'm going to get emails from Democrats who say that, that they don't. So anyway, they're moving forward with their spending plan, and the Republicans were mad about that. 
right? Because they say, I thought you weren't going to do that. So then what happened? Late last week, Republicans moved to block this bill that would help veterans. And it was basically admitted to by Senator Cornyn, who I respect, but I thought this was a little uh, out of character for him, actually. He tweeted out, Jeremy, that that they were uh, you know, delaying the bill to help veterans because of what the Democrats had done on the spending bill, right? I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but that's what he said. So here is Senator Cruz talking about the move to block the veterans bill, and you will hear Jon Stewart react to Cruz. And again, you get ready because Stewart's very unhappy. And uh, there are a few F-bombs in here, some four-letter words. Yeah, look, I, did, I didn't see John Stewart. He's actually quite funny. Look, he's talking about the PACT Act, which is a bill I support. It's a bill most senators support. Oh, hello. I'm John Stewart. Apparently. <laughs> quite funny. And I'm awfully interested in what Theodore Cruz is about to say about the PACT Act. Go on. But what the dispute is about is the Democrats played a budgetary trick, which is they took $400 billion in, in discretionary spending and they shifted it to mandatory. One thing, what Ted Cruz is describing is inaccurate, not true. Bullshit! This is no trick. Everything in the government is either mandatory or discretionary spending, depending on which bucket they feel like putting it in. The whole place is basically a fucking shell game. And he's pretending that this is some new thing that the Democrats pulled out, stuck into the bill, and snuck it past one Ted Cruz. Now I'm not a big city Harvard-educated lawyer, but I can read. It's always been mandatory spending so that the government can't just cut off their funding at any point. No trick, no gimmick, been there the whole fucking time. I'm not a lawyer either, but I do uh, keep tabs on politicians from Texas for a living. And if I had to make a bet, let's say, I was going to bet all the money in my pocket against all the money in your pocket, Jeremy. Um, I would place my bet such that I'd be trusting that John Stewart is a more honest broker about this than Ted Cruz. That's that's just me. I don't even need your opinion about that. You're you're a staid, steady newsman. You don't need to weigh in. Now, of course, Cruz could not let that stand. So he answered with a Twitter video of his own because, of course, that's where debates really play out is on social media, not necessarily on the floor of the U.S. Senate. John, you're a funny guy, and I appreciate your engaging on issues of public policy. That's a good thing. But if you're going to do so, the facts matter. Listen, when it concerns the PACT Act, I support the PACT Act. I voted for the PACT Act, and I've advocated for it for a long time. We have an obligation to take care of our veterans, particularly those who were wounded or injured from burn pits or, or in other ways from combat. The issue here is the Democrats included in this bill a, an accounting gimmick where they took $400 billion of spending, discretionary spending, they shifted it to mandatory spending. Didn't change the amount at all. But the reason they did that is it created a hole for $400 billion in new discretionary spending. Their objective, they want to cram $400 billion in unrelated spending onto this bill that has nothing to do with veterans. Senator Cornyn had said, hey, look, this bill is going to pass. Um, and after it did, John Stewart was on CNN. He was asked by the news anchor uh, over there, uh, one of the midday anchors, Ana Cabrera, uh, about how all this played out. Do you feel like you know some of the the personal battles you have faced with some of these senators, like your Twitter battles with Ted Cruz, 
have resulted in a pushback against you, that some of these no votes on this bill have become personal. Oh, wow. If that's the case, that may be more pathetic than them fist bumping after denying health care and veterans to, uh, benefits to veterans. If they're so fragile and so weak that somebody coming out on Twitter and correcting them in an impolitic way makes them change their votes, I don't know, then, then maybe they need to be somewhere else where, where their power doesn't affect people's lives so directly. There is a valid point here, Jeremy. The people we're talking about are not your, and not that, uh, not that, not that everyone I'm about to mention isn't important or anything, but these are not state representatives or city council members or people who are running for school board or take it uh, down one more level. These are not people who are running for class president. These are United States senators. And the idea that they would, as he said, and there's video of it, you can look it up. It's on my Twitter feed and elsewhere. You can see Republicans fist bumping on the floor after delaying the bill that would get the help to the veterans you're talking about. It's a level of petty politics that is, I think, to most people when they see this, and probably a lot of Republicans would see this and say, kind of disgusting. What What are you guys doing? Now, I'm glad they eventually went on and passed the bill. There, there's not there's not a lot of times that you get to say, as I said at the outset of this, not a lot of times you get to say that there's such anger and resentment and hatred over a good bill that passed anyway, and, and bipartisan legislation, Republicans and Democrats both like it. But let me take you right back to the beginning of the theme of this show this week. And the reason I had to flip the coin, because people, you know, on the Republican and Democratic side want to have their way. I got to figure out some fair way to do this. <laughs> They're even fighting each other about something everyone agrees about, Jeremy. That's how bad it is. Yeah. And, and, and you know, not to play this veteran card stuff here, but, uh, you know, I covered you know, Capitol Hill, you know, several times in my career. So I, I kind of have learned sure. how the budgetary uh -huh. process works. And the one whole you the entire time mm -hmm. that I was listening to Ted Cruz, it's like, yes, you know, there's the potential of opening up a $400 billion discretionary hole. There is, you know, in the budget that could be used for other things in the VA. You know, it's like, but the thing is, the Senate can make that case every time. They can fight that if there's if they're gonna if the Democrats or the Republicans, you know, whoever's in control of the Senate next time around, they they can all make the case individually on those things and, and make a big stink about it and say, look, you know, it's like you know Chuck Schumer's trying to take money out of the VA to put it into X Y Z whatever. It's like they could make that case time and time again, and you could do it on any issue. The fact that they followed, you know, Senator Toomey of Pennsylvania in on this issue, like, you know, again, there's no disagreement. You know, what John Stewart was saying there was correct. Like it was in, you know, this bill was structured this way when they first voted for it. You know, Toomey just wanted to try to unpack this piece that had already been in there. And so they already had a chance to stop it, you know, months ago. You know, you know, way earlier in the year, they could have done that. But for some reason, they made this the issue and they always have control over future discretionary spending, particularly if Republicans right. take control of the House and the Senate. And so, like, the whole argument to me felt like a weird exercise where everybody kind of lost sight of, again, the 40,000 Texas veterans who are sitting on this registry waiting for help. And it's like, and it's just infuriating, you know, that any delay happens on that stuff and that like this bill was threatened at some point because what? 
you know, that's 43,000 of our neighbors who were serving next to these burn pits somewhere, you know, who mm. are having maybe trouble breathing. And we're like going to like uh, slow walk their their benefits. Come on. We can't like there's a line where politics is just really terrible. Well, there, yeah. And I will say that this is um, it's not new uh, that you do have pettiness in politics. Obviously, we've 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 been at this for a while. Um, but I do think that the coarseness of it and the um, and the pettiness and the and the the seeking of retribution has gotten more pronounced. Um, and I'm thinking of last year. You remember the Democrats fled to Washington, a quorum break. And the Republican majority here in uh, in Austin was interested in passing this big elections bill, which they did pass. And then there were other things added to the subsequent special sessions in Austin after the regular session didn't work out to, to, to the 100 uh, percent satisfaction of Governor Abbott. And some other things were added uh, to the special session, like, you know, uh, another ban on critical race theory and some other things that were very divisive when when the governor was mostly had said he, that he was mostly interested in getting the elections bill passed. And I was talking with um, a Republican operative who made the following comment. And this is I, and we had a little bit of an argument I, when more right wing legislation was being passed to the special session agendas or excuse me, was being added to the special session agendas when they were putting more of that red meat festival out there for everybody, Jeremy, this Republican operative said, well, the Democrats, they, they left and went to Washington. So of course we have no choice now. We have to do this stuff. We, they, 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 uh, the Democrats were wrong to leave for Washington. So we have to get revenge basically. And I said, no, you don't. You, you, you have a choice. In fact, that's in the nature of being in the majority is that you you get most of the choices, right, in power, right? If you want to go on and do your elections bill, fine. You have to do redistricting. You're going to do that, fine. Uh, but it, am I being um, inaccurate, Jeremy, to say that I think they got enough red meat during that regular session of the legislature last year and didn't really need to keep going in that direction by the time we were two and three special sessions in? It just seemed like a bit too much. What I do know is that's uh, not too much of the show. It's just the perfect amount. Am oh, I right? Absolutely. Tank is completely filled. Tank is full. If you love the show, you know you do. You should be a subscriber on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, however you listen to this. We don't judge you. Please judge us, though. Leave us a good rating. Say nice things about us in the reviews. We appreciate it. Subscribe at quorumreport.com and houstonchronicle.com. We'll see you next time.